This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you very much, Father Alan. Um, now I'm smiling and blushing because I think, uh-oh, as if you will see, or as you see, even perhaps just looking at the themes up here, it's planned to be basically more on Augustine. And yet, I hope that's okay. Um, if that is all right, I would, can certainly skip and just go right to the 14th century if you would like. But this is part of a larger project, if I can put it in those terms. Bless you. Um, and that larger project is one that I'm basically starting which is focusing on Augustine's understanding of church and its reception. That is certainly, um, the reception part of it is very much there. I was asked, actually, Father Allen mentioned the um, Oxford Guide to the Historical reception, uh, reception of Augustine. I was asked to write the entry on ecclesiology, which I did, and that got me thinking and looking into all sorts of areas that even if I had an interest in previously, I had not really done research in, namely the reception of Augustine and his understanding of the church, all the way up to basically the 20th, 20th century. And one of the things I started finding, at least in my mind, was actually the extent to which Augustine's understanding of church was not received. It was misunderstood. It was used for a variety of different purposes. It was dismissed. How could that be? Because on the one hand, Augustine is all around us, at least in Villanova, where I come from. Um, it's actually very easy to talk about Augustine because no one has really ever heard of him before, which makes my job infinitely more easy than having to talk to people who grow up with Augustine, so to speak, or have to read Augustine in their freshman seminar and those types of things. Um, but yet, Augustine's understanding of church is a difficult one to have. Karl Rahner which is a name I trust you, you know, even came out explicitly and said that Augustine was wrong when he said, I would not believe, have believed the gospel if it weren't for the authority of the Catholic Church. Edward Schielebex doesn't even mention Augustine in his work on the church. Von Balthasar starts out sort of very intensely dealing with Augustine and then goes beyond and almost ignores him and leaves him behind as he develops later on in his works. So why is that the case? And one answer that seems to me to be the, the, the reason is that Augustine is uncomfortable. He's often dismissed as being someone who is pessimistic. And that was actually Rahner's argument that we should have a work towards a more open, inclusive church rather than this dour, rigid, authoritative structure. He's a pessimistic person who denigrates the individual, denigrates human sexuality. We might as well just go beyond Augustine. Or perhaps we could adopt the approach of Eric Gregory in his book on the political order and love, trying explicitly to find a place for Augustinianism in political thought today but says that we have to actually approach it, as Richard Rorty suggested, by re-educating the dead. Now that is a way of making Augustine more palatable for us today. 
Now, is that a good thing? Well, maybe, but I think it is missing actually the point for reasons that I will get to today as we go along. Um, and for that reason, we're going to hear more about Augustine. Because I think it's precisely in his pessimism, when it's properly understood, that his doctrine of the church needs to be begun to be grasped uh, and needs to be interpreted. And that he's not pessimistic except in the sense of he takes seriously things such as sin, things such as predestination, things such as authority. But how so and why so? What was the context? How do we put that together? Is what I'm trying to get at in many ways. And I think in some ways that a dialogue and listening to Augustine's understanding of church is essential for us today. Also because of the parallels. Why is that? Um, what is the church? It's a difficult thing to try to define. One of the most quote-unquote Augustinian uh, modern contemporary attempts to deal with it, to define it, is actually Lumen Gentium of Vatican II. And yet that's also the document that argues for more openness to the whole concept, which means we almost need to ask the question, where are we going? Quo vadis, in that sense, for the church. I don't need, I don't think, to remind you the controversies over Vatican II. What did it really mean? What is it really saying? How do we incorporate that in our daily lives, so to speak? I was just um, a year ago or so at a major conference in Leuven on that question. What is Vatican II? What has its reception been? And on we go. And if I was going to leave you with any type of an impression today, it would be two things I would want you to walk out of. Number one, um, even though the sermones were complex, <laughs> a realization of the complexity of the problem. What is the church? What does it mean for us? How we define it, how we grasp and understand it, is a very complex issue. And number two, that as we are trying and struggling to come to terms with this thing, whatever it is, church, somehow Augustine has something to say to us today, not just as a relic of the past, but also in the present as we try to hear him and listen to him and assimilate for ourselves what we can from Augustine rather than trying to use him for our own purpose or to re-educate him in that sense, so to speak. It's not a given what the church is. I love Pope Francis. I think he's fantastic. But there are other people, at least in my diocese, that don't, that are worried precisely because he's leading the church somewhere that's not very comfortable. It's still a contemporary issue. And Augustine was in a very similar situation. What is the church for Augustine? How did he define it? What did it mean to him? And it was at a period when the church itself, however understood, was trying to define itself in a very messy complex of forces and debates and controversies. 
Now, when I was going through my presentation today, um, as I have it set up, which again, with this project that I am beginning to work on, which I have envisioned in four volumes, um, that's basically how I sort of structured it. I thought, okay, how do I do the whole thing in 45 minutes to an hour? And I started constructing this nice PowerPoint and going through it today. It took about six hours. Now, I would love to sit here and talk until 10.30 or 11 o'clock. And if you would love to sit here too, just say, okay, I'll be here and we'll just get going with it. But otherwise, what I'm going to try to do is to hit on the tips of the icebergs, which are actually tips of tips of icebergs on the whole problem. And to say it only is when we look at these three aspects of sin, predestination, and authority that we can begin to grasp Augustine. Now, I'm not going to be going through all of these points. Um, that's actually a problem that my students in Indianapolis have in terms of PowerPoints. Because they look at my PowerPoint slides and they say, well, what, what you're saying and what up there don't always go together. And I say, well, of course not. Um, for me, that's a given. I don't simply just read off what PowerPoints are there. I, I skip around sometimes. But rather than going through in that six-hour version of each point to try to explain it, I'm going to pick out, um, I think, or try to pick out what I think is the most important. And this was trying to set the stage with the question, ubi sit ecclesia, where is the church? Which is a question that Augustine asked himself, or at least posed in his work um, on the unity of the church, De Unitate Ecclesiae 405, written against the Donatus. And in that context, we'll be coming back to the Donatus, certainly, but it's also a question for us today, as I have already tried to set up, as we will see and as we go. Now, part of this, too, I hope you realize and recognize is not only the problem of how do we define the church, but on what basis. I'm a historian. Um, but as a historian in the United States, it's, it's a strange being. Because when I'm in Europe, I'm a theologian. As a church historian, that's part of the theology department. But here, I'm in the history department. It's a, a very strange kind of having to wear two different hats. I was trained by historians who were actually theologians, in many ways, from my undergraduate days on. And somehow combining these two things, history and theology, is no easy task. How do we do it? How do we approach Augustine historically as distinct from theologically? And I would argue that we very much can and have to. And yet those two approaches get rather messed up in many ways. But as I go along, because I could spend the next 45 minutes simply talking about that problem of the relationship between history and theology, but try to keep it in mind for yourselves to see where am I speaking as an historian and where as a theologian, so to speak. Because in some ways, I feel theologically that our need to listen to Augustine is imperative for us today. But that is a theological position more than a historical one, because the historian 
can't say something like that, I would claim and argue. As an historian, we can say, well, Augustine has been misinterpreted here and there, perhaps. We can look at the development, how other people have received, understood Augustine. But to say that today, Augustine is imperative for our own understanding of the church is a theological statement. And what is the basis of historical statements as opposed to theological statements, which is almost as complex as the concept of what is the church itself. Summing up, I said I wasn't going to read PowerPoints, um, but I am going to read one, because this is sort of the kernel of my position, both for today and in the larger project. Um, and Father Allen started off by talking about the anniversary of Father Tom's death. It'd be f nice if in 20 years from now, we all came back here, inviting myself that is, and then s see how the project ends up. And I want that perspective to be here too. This is the beginning of something I'm working on and I may have a very different understanding and conception at the end of it. But for now, the kind of working thesis hypothesis is to understand Augustine and his understanding of church. We must not only not dismiss his understandings of sin, predestination, and authority, but take them as the point of departing for grasping his understanding of church within the context of a theology of creation. As such, Augustine's understanding of church has been misunderstood, misused, and ignored or even dismissed from Augustine's death to the present day, though it is theologically imperative for our understanding of the church today. Now, so much for that nugget in a nutshell of what I hope you will see and what I'm hoping to convince you of. Now, when I started to say that there are parallels between the church in Augustine's day and ours, I hope you will see that as we go along. But I first want to point out some of the challenges that Augustine himself faced that were threatening church as it's still emerging at the time. And I have three up there, the Donatists, the Pelagians, and Rome. To begin with the Donatists. It's often easy to reduce the Donatists to being an early heresy that advocated for the efficacy of the sacraments based on the moral quality of the priest. Therefore, if you were baptized by one of the traitors, as they called them, um, it wasn't a valid baptism. And we forget to put it in the context because this was not simply a, a debate or a challenge over the sacraments. It was over the church itself. Because in North Africa, the Donatists actually in Augustine's day were the majority. Augustine was in the minority. The Catholics loyal to Rome were in the minority. And this is before Donatists were ever condemned as heretics. That is part of Augustine's doing. And as the whole process of Defining doctrine is emerging in the course of the second, third, fourth, on to the fifth centuries. Heresy is being defined as is orthodoxy. And at the time for the Donatists, they were absolutely convinced of their position. 
and with very good reason. How could you capitulate with Babylon? Rome was doing that in the Great Persecution, trying to wipe out Christianity. And some of the, these people did that. They handed over the goods. The basis for the word traitor, those who handed over the good, the traditores. They handed over, they gave away. Not making a political comment here, but so often, that is still how we deal with traitors. Edward Snowden, what did he do? Oh my gosh, he gave over documents. He's a traitor. Now that's the out-group perspective. I often make the analogy with um, being in the Netherlands in 1944. That means anything to anybody. Let's say you were in the Netherlands in 1944 and you are hiding Jews. And the SS knocks on your door. What do you do? It's a difficult decision. Because if you say, yes, you are right, I do have Jews, and you're not going to get them, what's going to happen? You're gone, they're gone. But if you say, what, me? <laughs> I don't have any Jews. What are you talking about? I don't like Jews. I think my neighbor has some Jews. Maybe you can survive, and they will too. It's a very gut-wrenching decision to have. Do I stand up to the Romans and say, no, I'm not going to just give you what you're asking for? Or do I say, well, if I do, after all, a Bible is just a Bible, a chalice is just a chalice. So what are things? I can still lead this community underground. Whereas if I am taken out, I can't. It's a very difficult decision to have to make. What do you do? But for the Donatists, if you're in a group whose bishop did stand up to the Romans and was martyred, you hate those people who gave over the goods, who wimped out, who capitulated. I mean, my wife is Dutch. I've lived in the Netherlands for a long time, so I can make comments, I think, about them that maybe I, even if I shouldn't, <laughs> I feel I can. There are very, 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 very few people in the Netherlands today who said, yes, my family capitulated with the Nazis. They all say, no, we were part of the resistance. But if you start adding up how many people were part of the resistance in the Netherlands, it's like, oh my God, there are far more people than ever were there, obviously. That's the kind of the, the, the problem that it engenders. You don't want to be part of the traitors. And yet people were, either for good reasons or not. But if you weren't, if you honestly weren't, you don't like those people. They're not even true Christians. No, this is not some speculative thinking about what makes the sacraments work in some formulation. This is, you have denied Christ. 
The true church is the church of the martyrs. Well, very good reasons for arguing that. The issue of witnessing to the faith, being a martyr, suffering martyrdom, was essential for the whole rise and growth of Christianity to begin with. And that tradition, which in the early fourth century was still very much alive, changes one's perspective once we have Constantine once we have the legalization of Christianity, once we have, with Theodosius, at the end of the century, just as Augustine is being ordained as priest and then as bishop, proclaiming Christianity the only legal religion in the empire, your whole perspective changes. Augustine thought it was fantastic what was happening. will come to later views thereafter. But it was a major parting of the ways. What do we do with this issue of the Donatus? I'll come back to his answer a bit later. But in many ways, just as the Donatus were a challenge that Augustine had to face, and just as they are being condemned in 411, Augustine starts hearing about this other plague that he's going to have to deal with. Pelagians. Pelagius was very much like Augustine himself, a British monk. Came to Rome and was shocked by what he saw. Why? The immorality that was there. Oh my gosh, Christians are not living a Christian life. No wonder there are problems. If just we could practice what we preach, we'd be far better off. There's no reason we don't. You think about it, you don't have to raise your hands, you certainly don't have to share. But how many of you do, or have, or still do, do things that you know are wrong, or not good for you, or not the best? And it's like, every day of my life. And I'm not going to make you raise your hands because I wouldn't believe you if you didn't. And Pelagius comes along and says, why do we do that? That's you know, really insane, isn't it? To consciously, willfully do something that you know is not in your own best interest. That's not good for you. And why? Because we're weak, that's why. I'm sick and tired of being weak. There's no need to be weak. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, be ye perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. God's not going to give us a command we can't fulfill. He doesn't say, go fly. But to be perfect, we can be. It's a matter of our weakness and our weak will. Augustine had problems with that, too. Why? Because it's, in many ways, the same thing as the Donatists. 
different theological issues are involved, but what were the Donatists arguing? The pure church, the church of the martyrs. What were the Pelagians arguing? The pure church, those who are perfect. Where is the church? Augustine asks. Is it with the pure, the perfect, the few, the good? Or is it with everybody? Is the church truly Catholic? Or is it very unlimitedly so that Catholicity simply means those who are pure? And then there's the problem and the challenge that Augustine had to deal with with Rome. Theodosius was a great event proving the truth of validity of Christianity. And then 410 happens. A goth sacks Rome. Now, from another perspective, that's very understandable. The goth was actually a Roman general. He was actually a Aryan Christian, but to the mind of the cultivated Augustine in North Africa, this is a barbarian sacking Rome. It's different knowing that there are skirmishes on the borders. It's different knowing that, yes, we're fighting people there, 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 and everywhere, but all of a sudden, when the Twin Towers go, that's different. Why? Because it's here. What do we do about the sack of Rome? Oh my God, why did Rome, was Rome subject to this? Well, there was a very clear answer for many people because they had become Christian. We have gone away from our traditional values. We've become weak. Turn the other cheek. That is not Christian, or that is not Roman at all. almost an early view of Edward Gibbon's perspective from where we get the whole concept of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Why? Because Rome became Christian. That's not being fair to Gibbon, whose work is still a classic and is fantastic and far more criticized and dismissed than actually ever read, but there's an element there. Or perhaps we are being chastised by God because we're not being Christian enough. After all, this is Rome we're talking about, eternal Rome. The empire that was to be bounded only by the heavens and the oceans, according to Virgil, by divine proclamation, had all of a sudden become a Christian empire of eternity. That concept of eternal Rome remained, just become, became Christian. What does this mean all of a sudden if we're being sacked? How do we re reply to that? Now, that are the issues. I'll come back to each of those in terms of how Augustine addressed these and in many ways. It's all together.
One thing that you, I'm sure you already know, but just to remind ourselves that Augustine was not a systematic theologian. He did not write a treatise on the church. Well, he did write treatises on the church, but he did not put it all together in a nice systematic form. He is, as he says, learning and growing as he's writing, and that is very much what comes out as we look at his works. And so to pull it all apart is difficult. We can't point to his doctrine of the church separate from any other aspect of his thought, his theology, if we want to really understand where he's coming from. But I turn to sin first because I already pointed out that that is part and has been part of the reason why, my gosh, Augustine is dismissed. Unbaptized babies should go to hell. I have two. Jonathan has a very new one. That seems pretty harsh. Evidence of original sin, and I know it. I think any parent knows it. They are little bundles of original sin. There's horrible, baby. We think, oh, they're so cute and innocent. No, they're not. It's me, 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 me. What does a baby do, if you don't remember? We cry. We sleep. We eat. We pee. We poop. We cry. We pee, poop. We pee. We go around and all, it's all me, me, me. Oh, isn't that cute? No, it's not cute. I mean, it is cute, too. And Augustine also, I'm sure, thought babies were cute. He was a father himself, after all. And yet his point is that it is being completely turned in upon ourselves. A baby, necessarily, is completely involved with him or herself. For Augustine, there's no greater evidence of original sin, because what is sin? Being turned in up on our own selves. And this was a huge distinction between Pelagius and Augustine. Also, a huge distinction between the Donatists and Augustine was under their, over their understanding of sin. We don't like to think of original sin, that we are in a sinful state. But for Augustine, that is what he's getting at. We are in a sinful state. He's not talking about sins, even though he can talk about sins too. It's not something we do that is the issue of sin. Sin is a state of being, of alienation from God, turning away from God. And then there are individual sins as well. The Donatists didn't seem to get that. The idea that we could be morally pure. Augustine says, no, okay, was it good that bishops gave over the scriptures to the Romans? Nah, probably not. Is it a sin? Well, okay, I can't even say it was sinful. Is it any worse than any other sin? If we have to say that the efficacy of the sacraments is based on moral perfection, there is no then efficacious sacrament. Because no priest is pure. 
when it comes down to it. So the Donatist position was untenable for that reason alone. And Pelagius If we say that we can be perfect, we are not only deluding ourselves, we're denying the gospel. Let's see, what did Jesus also say? Let he who is without sin cast the first stone, and even the Jews realize, oops, I better not do that. If we start looking at this pessimism as simply a recognition that we are existing in a state alienated for, from God, that's not pessimistic. That's simply describing the condition in which we find ourselves. And to understand that, we have to look at, at it in context of Augustine's view of how did it all go wrong? Or in other words, his view of creation. In so many ways, um, I would argue that Augustine should be seen as the great theologian of creation. It's not one of the highlights that often comes out of his theology. Um, one of the most recent works on his view of creation that I have seen um, came out in 1999 and still says that his theology of creation is basically very much underestimated and, and, and uh, understudied. And yet he was with it for his entire life. From the very early on in terms of his career, he dealt with this problem of is creation good? If so, where does evil come from? Growing up, he was involved with the Manichaeans, dualists, who argued for creation as being the product of the evil god. But for Augustine, creation is good, based on his Neoplatonic finally dealing with the problem of evil. And he wrote three commentaries on Genesis, one explicitly against the Manichaeans, three major commentaries on Genesis. The Confessions, books 11 through 13, are often seen as a commentary on Genesis. Um, and I would also claim that the City of God, books 11 through 22, are a commentary on Genesis and I'm probably leaving things out that could be seen as so such as well. His understanding of creation and God's creative nature conditions all of his theology and thought. And we cannot understand his under concept of sin or of the church without it because the church is part of it. God is creator and created a perfect world and then we fell. Sin is that distance from the perfect creation. We are not what we were created to be, even if we are being recreated to whom we are to become. 
in that sense. And for Augustine, that's a very important point to keep in mind that God's creating activity continues, not only in the universe, but in ourselves. Confessions, I would say, not only books 11 through 13, but books 1 through 13 are a commentary on Genesis. If you have, well, as I know you have, read the Confessions, what seems to be that huge gap between books 9 and 10, I think is all one and the same. He's talking about creation from the very beginning. As he says, what is man but a little piece of your creation? It's like the first paragraph of Confessions, creation comes up three or four times already. Augustine is being recreated himself in books one through nine. And then he turns to the cosmos. It's in some ways one of the first examples we have of the genre of microcosmos, macrocosmos. Then the Middle Ages becomes very prevalent. In the context of that realization that we are in a region of dissimilitude of God, not only do we start reading the Confessions as not simply Augustine's story of himself, but his story of humanity as such, but we can realize that sin is a description of that state. And then we have the little sins. And Pelagius or the Donatists don't actually grasp that sufficiently to give God his due, so to speak. Now, in the context of the condition with which we find ourselves, and in his response to the Pelagians, we come increasingly confronted with Augustine's view of predestination, which is a problem. We don't like to think that we are predestined. Where is morality if we are predestined? Where is responsibility if we're predestined? And Augustine has been seen as not only the great um, originator of the whole concept of original sin, but also the person who has given us this understanding of predestination even though it's Paul before it is Augustine. But how do we approach it? How do we grasp it? And I'd argue that one point of departure for understanding it is predestination is not predeterminism. Predestination, as Augustine says, is within eternity. If we don't take this distinction between the eternal and the temporal into account, and well into account, we won't really grasp Augustine's understanding of predestination or of anything else. The temporal and the eternal are completely different modes of being. By definition, the eternal is not temporal duration. It is being atemporal. Within the concept of atemporality, that means no time. 
No time means no before, no after. There is an eternal presence and an eternal present. So that in the realm of eternity, God's creation and predestination of the final judgment, the merited ends of the two cities, which we'll come back to, are simultaneous in that sense. And it's only when temporality begins that we have this perception of succession, one after the other. And that leads us to this almost predilection for trying to interpret everything into cause and effect. What causes um, a rock to fall if I'm holding it and let go? Well, we have a gravity. Why did it fall? Because I let it go and there's a gravitational force. Cause and effect. We see it every day. Or we think we do. We like to think that we do. Why is someone going to be saved? Because there is a cause and there is an effect. Why is someone going to be damned? Because there is a cause and there is an effect. But is there? How do we negotiate this tension between the temporal realm and the eternal? In some ways we can deal with them individually fairly well. But when we see that there is a relationship between the two, that's when things get very messy. And the same applies to Augustine's understanding of church, which is both temporal and eternal. And the third response to Augustine's challenges, I have up there is authority. Another reason to dismiss him, to say he is someone who began the tradition of coercive force for religious conformity. After he was able to have the government condemn Donatism in 411, after he realized that no, the Donatists weren't going to say, oh, now we see we are wrong. Okay. The use of force to force them to do what was right, based on authority, has been seen as part of Augustine's negative heritage as well. I would not have believed the gospel if the authority of the Catholic Church had not moved me, he wrote, which Rahner said was just plain wrong. But what is he talking about? Augustine's view of authority, I would say, is certainly not as such the Ignatian view of the spiritual exercise in thinking with the church, that we just accept what we know is wrong if the authority says so. What is authority and what types of authority are there? And it's not simply institutional authority. That is one form of authority. There's also charismatic authority. And there is the authority of knowledge and expertise. These all work together. We 
cannot live without authority when it comes down to it. That wonderful bumper sticker, which some of you certainly probably remember, question authority. I think it's fantastic, and I think authority has to always be questioned. It's not the same as throwing it out. But when it comes down to it, what is the alternative? The individual. I don't want to accept authority because I'm my own authority. I have individual sovereignty. But then where does that take me? Um, let's see. I am only going to rely on my own experience and knowledge and understanding. Therefore, I don't really think China exists. I've never been to China. Yes, I've known people who say they're from China, who speak a language they refer to as being Chinese. I've seen pictures, but I've never been there, experienced it. That could all be false based on my own experience. But that would be a horrible way to live your life. So I do accept authority of some sort as well as the authority of my own experience and ability to reason, even though I'm quite aware that my own experience, too, has deceived me repeatedly. In areas that I am not an expert in, which is 99.9% .9 of my life, I accept authority. I really sit down and analyze it. When I read a book, I accept authority. I have to. Or I'd be going crazy. I would say, I can't say anything about anything. The authority of knowledge, the authority of charisma, that it that's there is central too for Augustine what he's meaning here. Because the authority of knowledge over time is also called a tradition. We have to keep in mind that Augustine lived far, far closer to the time of Christ than we do to the time of Augustine. He still traced people back who were there. In the sense of being convinced by the truth He's not saying that all of a sudden um, the institutionalized church said, Augustine, you have to believe the gospel. And he said, oh, okay. It's the authority of the experience and the tradition itself. And that puts it in a very different light. Now, I would claim um, that what we need to work towards is this sense of relative absolutes. Now this is kind of skipping ahead, but I'm running out of time, I know. A relative absolute, in some ways, is a term, a concept that um, I've begun to use, in many ways, drawn from a 14th century Augustinian hermit, finally getting to the 14th century, Augustinus of Ancona, who wrote probably the most extensive 
treatise on um, the, the power of the church that had been written to that time in some ways that ever still has been, his Summa de Potestate Ecclesiastica. And he does not use this term relative absolutes, but it's there behind it because Augustinus has a wonderful way of arguing. He asks the question, is the Pope infallible? Which was a major issue in the early 14th century in the context of the papal imperial conflict at the time. And Augustinus says, well, yes, the Pope is infallible as long as he doesn't err. You can laugh. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's like, well, what does that mean? Well, as long as he doesn't make a mistake, he's infallible. Can the Pope misuse his power? And he says, absolutely not. The Pope cannot misuse his power. He has infinite power, but he can abuse his power. Abuse is not the same as use. Um, are we obligated to obey and follow a bad Pope? He says, yes, you, we are. Can there be bad Popes? Yes, indeed. But we are not to obey a Pope who is an obvious heretic. But in that case, we can't either because... There's the Pope would not be Pope by that very fact. But it's this duality that is kind of behind this whole concept of church as well, because what is it? And for Augustine, he didn't have a single understanding. He could see it as the eschatological Jerusalem as the institution, as the group he's with. How does it all fit together? And how does it unify into one whole concept and what does that mean for us? Now that is the challenge, I would have to say. What are we to do about it? Are we to develop our understanding of church without taking the pessimistic Augustine seriously? What does it mean for us, the state of sin that we're in? Oh, we can be ever so happy and think, oh, let's think so wonderfully about ourselves. I say that was Augustine's, we have to interpret that in a different way, different understanding. But what have we lost? Doesn't Augustine still have something to say to us on that basis as well? Whether it be on the basis of sin or the issue of sin. What does it mean that predestination is scriptural as well as Augustinian? Does it mean that we don't have free will? Does it mean that I was predetermined to wear my I heart Augustine tie today? Well, that, I think I was actually, but that's a whole other story. How do those go together? How do we handle this life in this realm, in this saculum, that can't be divided up into different disciplines of theology, political philosophy, politics, all one and the same? And it can become very difficult for us today in our world. The diversity and the unity, how do we handle Augustine's assertion that there's no salvation outside the church. You say, oh, we've moved beyond that. Well, have we? If we define the church as Augustine did, 
over and over and over again as the body of Christ. What does that really mean? Do we just throw it out? Or is there still a theologically imperative necessity, that's not being redundant, for not only having a theology of creation, but also a theology of proclamation? Or does proclamation mean that, uh-oh, we get very uncomfortable with that because we have to say things that we might not like or that other people might not like? Or should we all be good people that like everybody and get along, which we should be. Yes, love. We're called to love. But what does that mean? The point of departure, I would say, is for Augustine and for us really dealing with his concept of creation. Not in the specifics, but what does it mean to be creatures? We don't like to think of ourselves as creatures. We're independent, sovereign people. But to see us as creatures, which for Augustine was not a negative, but a beautiful positive. I think one of the most beautiful passages I've ever read is Confessions 10.6. When he's out and searching for God, and he asks nature, are you my God? They said, keep look higher, look higher, look higher. They said, well, all of you who are not my God, tell me something about he who is. And they all chimed out in unison, he made us. That is the point of departure for understanding Augustine's concept of church, sin, and everything else altogether. And I think still talks to us today. But to really explain all that and work it out in detail would take me another five hours just for the beginning. Well, thank you very much.